turn to Hebrews chapter 10, continuing on in this great book of the Word of God, the Bible, um, one that uh, has been a tremendous, tremendous for me in my understanding of Scripture. Today we're going to look at verses 23 to 25 of chapter 10. This is on the third part, and of course, the title of my message today is Holding Fast Together. Holding fast together. Now, we've just moved through a large doctrinal section, as I have already mentioned in Hebrews, and now we come to this practical outworking of doctrine. This is called the lettuce bowl of Scripture, and of course it links doctrines with deeds. And of course, through Hebrews up until this point, Hebrews insist on correct Teaching, the exhortation in this part of the Bible is on consistent behavior that comes from correct teaching. It's an outflow of it. There's doctrines always comes first before there there could be proper practice. Practice that has the right manner to it, the right motive to it, uh, the, the right reasons why you do something. So... In other words, the teaching of Scripture not only needs to be received by us, it also needs to be appropriated by us. And of course, we're not in the dark about that. The rest of chapter 10 is broken up into two parts. I already said exhortation. The first part, an encouragement. And the second part is warning. It gives appropriate responses to the preceding, I've been saying, ten and a half chapters of uh, Hebrews, but... Dwayne reminded me that it's nine and a half chapters, when, so I'm, I stand corrected on that one. And uh, so I want to let you know that. So believe, of course, Dwayne is the number man, so he, he, he keeps the numbers right. And, um, and that's good. And so it's nine and a half chapters that proceeded up until this point, and believers are exhorted and encouraged uh, to action. That's the whole point here. And the reason why is because they possess something new. They're new. They have been... They have received the Holy Spirit of God. They've received the gospel, and they are changed. God transformed their lives. They're no longer what they used to be. And because of that, they are now desirous to do something about what God's already working in them because they have in their possession something they did not have before. So the great and the grand truth which is for all God's children, is that based on that one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God, when someone comes to faith in Christ, God forgets their sins, He forgets all their violations of His law, and He doesn't just cover their sin, He actually purges them. He drives that sin away so it will never come up against them again. That's why in Verse 18 of chapter 10, it says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. By Christ's full and final expiation of all sin for all time, believers are made right before a holy and a just God and now have continual access to their God as never before. And so... That's all based on objective truth. That's all based on doctrine. That doctrine gives us the basis to have confidence that 
everything we embrace in Christ is now to be worked out in our life. That objective truth enables us to enter into God's presence with confidence, which in turn informs our feelings, enabling us to feel assured of the realities of our faith, and then it causes us not to waver, not to be like this reed in the wind going back and forth, but it causes us to remain faithful in Christ, to take the next step, to live the next day in Christ, and it gives that in turn gives us evidence that we are truly members of God's household, that we are truly members of God's visible church on earth when we press on in that manner. And it all is based on the truth of the Word of God, and then it works out. So before the holidays, I said that there were two things that needed to accompany our approach to God. The first one, if you remember, was followers of Jesus Christ are to enter God's holy place with confidence, right? And so true believers already have confidence and are exhorted to go directly into the presence of God. And then the last two messages included a challenge for prayer, that going into the presence of God has everything to do with Christians praying together. That is an expression of the Christian's lifestyle of faith. There's no greater way to express faith than by prayer, than by depending on God together as a body. And the second thing I mention that is needed in our approach to God is that followers of Jesus Christ are, are to draw near with sincerity. And drawing near with sincerity included coming to God with an honest heart. Uh, just an open heart. You're an open book before God. God knows everything going on in your life. No sense hiding anything from Him. You can't do it. So don't even convince yourself that it can be done. Everything you do is in front of the eyes of God. No matter when you do it, where you do it, how you think you are hiding it, you're not hiding it from the Lord. So when you come to God in prayer, come with an honest heart and then come with a cleansed heart. Now remember, your heart's already cleansed, but... We are to confess our sins so that cleansing process of the blood of Christ continues on and the effectual power of the cross continues on daily. We need the cross every day. Even though we have been eternally saved, we need the cross every single day and that another way of us depending on God. Lord, cleanse the sin in my life. Give me victory over it. Let me bring it before you and confess it to you. Take it from me. Remove its power from me. So I can go on, have put that thing to death, and continue to grow in Christ Jesus. So in that way, we grow in our confidence to come before God. We're not, we're, we're not coming to, before God afraid. We're coming with reverence, but not afraid. Because now God is our Father. The relationship has changed from being our judge to being our Father. And so therefore, we have a family relationship to God now that we're in Christ. And that is... There's this great confidence. So coupled with an understanding that we are to regularly draw near to God with a cleansed and an honest heart, that at this point, real believers actively show their confidence in what and in whom they believe by so far two things. 
by entering in. In verse number 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and then by drawing near, in verse number 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That's where we're at. That's where I left you last time. And so this morning, I would like to dip back in to the scriptural lettuce bowl and examine several other vital practices to the Christian lifestyle of faith. And that's what I'm calling it. This is now a lifestyle of faith, and this is building up to chapter 11, which is the chapter on faith. That the only way that chapter 11 could have been written is if those people understood the doctrine that went with, went with living that way. And believe me, when we get there, you're going to find that their lives were, they were in, in such despair as far as what we think is living a good life, and yet they live by faith, and they obtained the promise. They held on to the promise, even though the fullness of the promise they knew they would not have until they actually died and went into the presence of God. But by faith, they held it, because they knew God was true. They knew that he could not lie. So, this third thing that I want to mention is that followers of Jesus Christ are to hold fast their confession in verse number 23 that comes with two responsibilities holding fast our confession in christ jesus comes with two responsibilities and the first responsibility is this that the responsibility to hold fast is for ourself first for you first individually because He's heading somewhere in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse number 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, let me just stop there. Brethren, I don't want you to miss the personal pronouns used in these passages. Because if you notice, it says, let us hold fast. Right? And then in another place, it says, talks about, right, a confession of our hope. So he's talking in a plural way here. He's not talking in the way that it's just you alone and, and that's it. No, he's talking in a corporate way, in a assembling way. He's talking in a way that, listen, it's all about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us. But, interestingly, he starts with you. That the responsibility to hold fast starts with you and me individually first. Just like in Proverbs, it says, take hold of the instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. He's talking about wisdom there in Proverbs, right? Listen, when you get wisdom, don't let it go. Meaning that you could lose it in the sense you can, somebody can take it from you. Some event can remove it from you. Some, something can cause you to let it, lay it down. Don't do that. Hold it fast. Hold it close to you. The things that we usually hold fast and close to us are things that are dear to us. Things that are important to us. Things that we understand and we know we don't want to let it go. It's like when Paul told the Corinthian church, by which also you are saved, meaning you're saved by the gospel, if you hold fast the word, which 
I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Listen, once you become a Christian, you hold fast to the gospel the rest of your life. Why? So you can live in a way where you didn't believe in vain, that you really know what you believe, and that you're holding it fast every single day because you're living it out every day. Your faith is a reality every day. Now, doesn't holding fast give you the sense that if you believe in Christ and what He has done and what He is doing in your behalf right now, that you would hold these convictions with endearment and not want to let them go? Wouldn't holding fast, holding fast give you that kind of picture? That you will hold these convictions with endearment. That these convictions are the most important thing in your life. In fact, you grow to the point where they're more, more, they're more important than anything. You can die with convictions like this. You will go to your grave with convictions like this. Now, again, what is interesting about this phrase, let us hold fast our confession, is that the Scripture uses it in a particular verbal mood. Now, I bring this out for this reason, because of the point I'm making about having to do with yourself first. And the verbal mood is that of a subjunctive mood. And in other words, a subjunctive mood may represent a verbal action or a state a, a group of people may be in, a person may be in, or it's often called the mood of prob- probability. It's not an imperative. He's not giving a command here. That's That's interesting. Do Christians really need a command for something they desire to already do? They don't, and that's why he does it. See, when you're a real believer, you desire to do the things he's going to talk about. You don't have to be commanded to do it. And so he's, he's using it here is in an exhortative way that the whole body of believers are to be exhorted in, starting with the individuals, that we are individually to take hold our confession of Christ for the sake of the rest of the believers. In other words, the way we live our life, the way we believe what we believe, affects everyone else around us in the body. If we're wavering and doubting and and we're in that place all the time, is it not going to affect everybody around you? It is. It's going to affect you too. So, What he is saying here is that the subjunctive mood is used to urge someone to unite with the speaker in a course of action upon which that speaker has already decided. So you decide to hold fast your faith, right? The next person decides to hold fast their faith based on this truth, based on what the Word of God is saying, based on the doctrine that supports it. So the use of the subjunctive is an exhortation in the first person plural. And the typical translation would be that we should, but that's not the translation here. The translation here is what? Let us. Let us. Now, that becomes really important. It is not we should do this. 
it is more let us do this. And I believe the difference is in the understanding of the value of what we have. What God has done for us in our salvation. We understand that so well that we are saying individually to everyone else, let us do this as a body. God's already given us the desire, let us do it. It's coupled with corporate unity here to do it together. So why should an exhortation to hold fast to our initial confession of faith in Christ be given anyway to a a group of people? Well, I like how Pastor Raymond Brown put it, pastor from long ago in England, and he said this, in a society like ours, he's talking about England, but ours is just like it, where Christ is not loved, his standards are not honored, where God's word is widely ignored, and the Christian faith often dismissed as either incredible or unattractive, believers, he then says, must be firm. They must hold fast, unwaveringly, in the confession of their hope, because that's the world we live in. The world is trying to take it away from you. In fact, that is the scheme of the devil. Once you become a believer, and he is saying here, in other words, let us not abandon the precious hope that we have or allow someone or something or some something to rob us of it that these are all trying to get your faith. So don't let anything induce you to abandon faith in Christ, to abandon what God's already given you, not worldliness. It will try to lure you to love something other than God. That's what worldliness is. Not materialism. Materialism will tempt you and ultimately get you to forget God because it makes people self-sufficient. It makes people think that they don't need God because they have everything. That's what materialism does, and it causes people to lay aside the most important convictions of their life. Also, not family or friends or peers or social pressure. These may be factors of really a shaky and a questionable faith. Cynical voices all around us. Cynical voices always casting doubt over the things God has said and done. It's the old satanic twist from the garden. Has God really said that? Do you really know you're saved? Come on. How prideful is that? How arrogant is that? Jesus Christ is the only way. How narrow could you be? That's the thinking. We're in that every day of our life. We're bombarded with that. Kids in school are bombarded with that. See, see, we need to hold fast of something that everybody's trying to take away. And God's given it to you. Don't let it go. Also, in this case, in this passage of Scripture, the real problem for them was suffering and affliction and persecution. That's why, look at in verse number 32 of chapter 10, what he addresses. But remember... The former days when after being enlightened you endured great conflicts of sufferings. Verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were 
so treated in verse 34 for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one these people were really under persecution having your home and what you work so hard for taking from you because of your faith and they they took it with joy but at this particular point it could be that they, they may be thinking, I don't know if that was a great thing to do, to take with joy. Maybe I should have stepped back a little bit. Maybe this whole Christian thing isn't really something I want to give my whole life to. Those kind of doubts come in. That's why we have to hold fast. And that's happening, that happens to all of us. We are going to have times of doubts. We're going to have times that affliction and persecution may tempt you to grumble and to complain, and even to despise God, and some to abandon Him altogether. Leave the faith because of persecution, because of tribulation, because of trial. Don't abandon the faith for those things. Hold fast even if those things come in your life. And don't abandon it for the unpredictable events of life. These may work out in a way that will test your faith, will cause your faith to shake a bit, to be challenged. But, but understand this, and don't be surprised, ever be surprised by tests and trials of your faith. You know why? Because all our faiths in Christ must be tested, right, as to its genuineness. That's when you really know you're a believer, when you've gone through this trial or this suffering or this persecution, wh- however it may came, come uh, have come through you through family friends peers work loss of something and you are still holding fast to the truth the smoke clears and you're still standing see that is why in our scripture this morning if you look back to verse number 23 it says it really you will find the manner in which we are to hold fast and the motive. What is the manner in verse number 23? Look what it says. Hold fast the confession of our hope without what? Without wavering. There is the manner in which you are to hold fast. Without wavering. It really means to be firm, to be unmovable. Literally, it includes not leaning. In other words, Never letting your confession bend so as to droop to the ground, to be dragged to the ground. Like a sickly sunflower plant that droops down toward the ground instead of a brightly colored, vigorous plant strongly following the movements of the sun so as to soak up every needed ounce of strength to maintain its vivaciousness i use that for an illustration because the distinguishing characteristic of a sunflower is the flowering head tracks the sun's movement it's called heliotrophism you see holding fast your confession of faith in christ and all that he has said and done will keep you from drooping into coldness of heart, slipping into sin and false doctrines. That Christians should be heliotrophic, but maybe we 
weotrophic, because the word for son in the Greek is weos, weostrophic, to keep carefully tracking with the son. That's pretty good teaching for a Christian. Keep tracking with the son. As the son teaches us, we move with him. So see, it is our manner of holding fast. It has to be without wavering carefully tracking with the Lord. A second thing in verse number 23 is the motive in which we are to hold fast. Notice what it says, for he who promised is faithful. What's the motive? You know what the motive is? The character of God. We understand and what we understand and believe about God. God can't lie. God can't deny himself. So, making promises today seems not to have the same weight as it it once did. But usually when a promise is made, a promise is only as good as the character and integrity of the person who makes it. Scripture often affirms the character of God. Back in Numbers, it says, God is not a man that should lie. And then in Titus, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. See, if, if God's character is not behind our salvation, we're all doomed. It's God's character that causes us to hold fast. That is the motive that we have in our heart. I know I am saved because God said He saved me in this manner, and I believe that by faith. And so therefore, I'm walking in it every day. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 6 where God backed up His promise with an oath? God swore by the greatest authority in the universe Himself. Putting His own integrity, reputation, and honor on the line to guarantee the fulfillment of what He had promised. See, God didn't need to make an oath. His word was good enough, but God wanted to make sure that the doubt was cleared out of the, in the minds of his children that they would know for sure that he, when he makes a promise, you can trust that and you can die with that truth, knowing that he will take care of everything. Like he said in Hebrews 6.17, in the same way God desiring even more to show to hit the heirs of, his, of, of the promise, the unchangeableness of his promise interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So don't we have a hope? We have a hope that in Christ Jesus we have, our go- we're going to live in the kingdom of God with him. That's the hope we have, right? God said that's going to happen. Now, Am I, am I experiencing the kingdom right now? In some ways, I am in the body of the church, right? In the worship of God that we're learning to do here. But someday, I'm going to be with God, with a resurrected body. That's the hope he laid in front of us. And God says that if I said it, it will happen. And it will happen just as I say it in the word of God. You don't have to read between the lines. There's nothing there except white spaces. I tell you the truth, not in a dark corner, on the rooftop. 
I got the megaphone and I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do. And so you trust in the character of God. So an oath was added in addition to the word of promise as a confirmation, as a legal guarantee. The Lord did it to remove any and all doubt and argument from the mind of his children that he was that some in that he was in some way going to renege on his promise. See, the point is that he cannot renege. Because if he reneged on his promise, he would deny his own character, and God can't do that. Hebrews eleven. Listen. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, it says this by faith. Even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, right? Even beyond the proper time of life where it was impossible for a woman to conceive, this is what it says, since she considered him faithful who promised. So what caused her? To laugh? Isaac means laughter, right? But she believed God. And she had Isaac, and of course, in Isaac, all the promises of God come true. Abraham, Isaac, and of course, Jacob, which his name is turned to Israel. So considering the faithfulness of the one making the promise is the principal means of strengthening faith in the promise. God made the promise. It strengthens my faith in that promise because of who made it. God's not going to change his mind. He's not going to take a left turn on us. He's just not going to do it. He can't. That's his character. And see, I base my faith on that. I don't see it all with my eyes yet, but I see it by faith. And that's what faith is. Faith is holding to something. And I'm holding to the character of God. I'm holding to what he says. So I believe that God, because of his character, must bring to pass the very things he has promised, right? That's how I can hold fast. So see, it starts individually. And then it strengthens the whole body as you have a bunch of individuals in Christ holding fast to the confession they have in Jesus Christ and the hope in the promise that he made. And what happens is that that group of people become stronger as they work and minister together to do the work God wants them to do in the world. So we have a big problem. You know what the problem we have is? The problem we have is this, we're Americans. And Americans have a real huge problem when it comes to the Christian faith. You know what the problem is? We are too individualistic. Right? See, it's not about us, it's about me. That's an American. It's not about the world, it's about America. And you know what? You go to another part of the world and the other part of the world get that. They see our arrogance in that kind of attitude. In an interview with Chuck Colson, he was the head of prison fellowship, concerning the church as a community of believers, said this, we live in a therapeutic age where everything is measured by how much I get out of it. He continues, the church ought to be measured by what we put into it for God and others. And we live in an era of rampant individualism. 
So in a very individualistic culture, the whole idea of being part of, of a community is countercultural. And it fits perfectly in the what's in it for me, narcissistic attitudes prevalent in the American culture. So I bring that up for this reason, because you are to hold fast your confession of Christ for the sake of the rest of the believers. You cannot do it really alone. You cannot live your Christian life alone. God never intended that. It is impossible to do. You will drop out so fast, you won't know it hit you. Because now the flesh, the world, and Satan are all against you. When you come into the body of believers, you have protection. You have the word of God. You have each other holding fast to your confession of faith. That's why the church becomes so vitally important. And especially, that's why he brings it up to the Hebrews here in this passage of Scripture, because they were being pounded with affliction and persecution and doubt. They were ready to give it up, to let go. And he's saying, don't do it, because this is what God's done. It's not for you individually, it's for us corporately. Together we grow strong as a body. So the second responsibility is the responsibility to encourage others to do the same thing we're doing and to believe the same things we're believing. Look at verse number 24, Hebrews 10. We have mutual, we have a responsibility of mutual encouragement. Let us consider, look what it says, verse 24, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Can't do that alone. Again, there's let us consider. We must not forget we are Christians not only for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. And the word here, consider, it means to be attentive to, to fix one's eyes upon, to fix your mind upon. What? That we are to put our minds to the task of taking thought of others. Get out of yourself and look to the needs of others in the body. That Christians are exhorted to have a proper concern for other Christians and are to be continuously attentive to the welfare of other believers. And that's both that's spiritually, morally, physically. Their wants, their infirmities, their temptations, the dangers they find themselves into. And then we're to find some kind of suitable assistance to give them. Some advice, some, some caution, word of caution, some admonition some consolation that we can give them so they don't let go of their confession. So they can continue strong in the faith. So here in our passage, there is another strong word. It says in verse 24, to stimulate them. In other places, it's used in this way, to incite them. Usually when we use the word incite, it means that this person, what? Incited a riot, right? He was the instigator. He incited it. And caused all this trouble. Well, it's the same, it's that kind of word there. That's why in some translations it says to poke them, to provoke them, to stick them. Like you stick a horse to get it going. Right? That's what you do. To stimulate other believers. Because you know why? Sometimes I'm having a good day, a good week, a good year. Sometimes I'm not. Right? But you are. And so I look like I'm going down down 
for the count and you come alongside of me. And what do you do? You stimulate me. You consider what I'm going through and you stimulate me to do something. You stimulate me, though, in two areas, to love and to good works. And only the body could do this. This is how God designed the body, that we are to provoke, to excite each other, that our brothers and sisters in Christ would be encouraged to be involved with labors of love and good work. So, in other words, love is the motive behind everything we do. And good deeds is the practice of the love. Love is the motive, good deeds is the practice of the love. So, Doing good deeds adorn the gospel and glorifies the Father who is in heaven. Titus tells us this, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in what? Good deeds. And then he says this, these things are good and profitable for all men. So we are to stimulate others to practice their confession of Christ by working out what God has worked in them. And how do you do that? By good deeds. But I have found that many people are very confused about what exactly are good deeds. Remember, good deeds we're talking about here come after conversion, not before conversion. After conversion, I can actually love because I understand love that proceeds from the cross of Christ and what Christ did for me. And now I can love God, which in turn causes me to love people. Right? which in turn causes me to do something about what I see people are going through. And so therefore, there are some particulars about good deeds I want to just throw out to you real quick before I come to a conclusion this morning. And it's this. Good deeds has, have, has certain particulars, about ten particulars to good deeds. Number one, the vessels of good deeds are cleanse vessels it tells us in second timothy therefore if anyone cleanses himself from these things he will be a vessel of honor sanctified useful to the master prepared for every good work also the motive of good deeds is from matthew 5 16 good works glorify the father that are in heaven you want to show people about the faith that you have in christ do something the objects of good deeds, also from Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men. So the objects of good deeds are people. But in particular, in Scripture, first those of the household of faith, and then everyone else. Neighbors, strangers, relatives, enemies. We're to do good works to everybody because of Christ. The purpose of good deeds is to provide needs and meet needs. Our people must learn, it says in Titus, to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. So part of the fruit of a Christian is good deeds. The realm of good deeds are you, the church. In other words, what Paul told the Ephesian church for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works for God prepared beforehand so we should walk that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So the way God created you physically and gifted you spiritually 
the measure of the gift that he's given you, that is the realm in which you're going to use your good your your gifts. You're going to do good 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 works. You're going to do good deeds. The preparation of good deeds is the scriptures. The scriptures will completely outfit us for everything that God has for us. Where it says in a very well-known passage of scripture in Second Timothy. 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every what? Good work. Also, the direction of good works. Two directions. Prayer, corporately, and bearing fruit. Colossians tells us this, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as we learn doctrine and we are provoked to love and good works, it causes us to grow in Christ, increasing the knowledge of God, and in increasing the knowledge of God, we bear fruit of our conversion. And of course, the specifics of good, need, good works are everything. Good works, good deeds are everything that believers do out of love for God and the building up of the church. Of course, that could mean our understanding of giving to the poor, the less fortunate, the sick, the the weak, the feeble, the elderly, the widow, the orphan, the missionaries, the young married, the young married men and women in the church with care packages and letters and emails and texts and clothing and food and helps and companionships and talking with them and go to Starbucks and go, going to uh, Dunkin' Donuts, wherever you go, to encourage someone and then, of course, to pray with them. And then, if need be, to invite them to Christ if you detect they don't know the Lord. To always give the gospel. Invite them to your home and bring them to church. Bring them to the... Do- whatever they need, find out what it is and do good works before the Father And he is glorified when you do so. And the affirmation of good works is simply this. It shows that you have been changed by God through Christ. Where James gives the argument, if you have faith, what? Show me. Right? If you have faith in God, all right, show me. For it says in Scripture, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, dead? So a Christian who is alive and who has the Spirit of God has a desire to hold fast their faith. And in doing that, it encourages the whole body. And then they have eyes now to see the needs of the others in the body and have also a desire to what? To do good works to do it out of a motive of not getting something, forgiving something, but out of a motive of love, right? And if I do it out of a motive for love, love to my Lord and to my Savior, I'll never want anything in return. Because God's given me so much that I don't deserve anything else. And so I'm not looking for something because I'm giving something. I'm looking to glorify God. That's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to use my gifts so I can grow. I'm looking to see the body flourish and become healthy. That's what I'm looking for. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 10. How, brethren, is this 
mutual encouragement going to take place? If we forsake the assembly of believers, look what it says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembly together as a manner of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here, for the word for assembly, he uses the word Epi-synagogue. Synagogue. Speaking to Jews, right? What was the synagogue? Well, just think for a minute. Synagogue simply meant this. A gathering of believers in one place. An assembling together. To meet together. So the Jews understood that synagogue was a common term used for religious buildings, religious places where they would gather together with other Jews to worship God, to hear the reading of the Torah and the Old Testament. That's what they understood. So he is saying to them, listen, you cannot forsake the assembling together, because remember, it starts with you, but it, it's when you hold fast to your faith, it has to do with the whole body. It has to do with meeting together with other believers. But you see, thinking like this is still very much alive. It is still possible for a person, and I talk to them all the time, to think that he can be a Christian or she can be a Christian and yet abandon the habit of worshiping with God, with God's people, in God's house, on God's day. You can't do it. It cannot happen. John Stott, a longtime pastor in the United Kingdom, wrote a recent book called The Living Church, Convictions of a Lifelong Pastor. And he said this, and he had to, There was a a chapter there on the unchurched Christian. And he wrote, and I quote, I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly. An unchurched Christian. Then he said this, the New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. That the gathering of believers is essential to the encouragement of other believers. Believe me, when you're not here, I'm saying, where are they? Did they let go of the faith? What's happening in their life? Are they thrown in the towel? But when you're here, I'm encouraged to see you every time. I, get, I may not tell you personally every day, but I'm encouraged when I see you. And you know what? Hopefully you're encouraged when you see me. Thank you, Carol. Carol's my greatest cheerleader. See, see, while it's true, I can worship and you can worship everywhere we go, it is only in the gathered assembly. I get to worship Him with you. 
I get to hear the Word of God read with you. I get to hear the Word of God taught with you. I, we sing the Word of God together. We pray the Word of God together. We recite the Word of God together. We hear the preaching of the Word of God together. I get to receive the ordinances, like baptism, the rite that signifies those who belong to the community and the Lord's table, the partaking of the visible elements that just remind us over and over again of why we're here, because of the death of Christ, because of what he did on the cross. That's what the elements are about. So we never let go of that truth, that essential, vital truth. But we get to do it together. The Lord's table is never something you go do privately in your own closet or in some ceremony somewhere. The Lord's table is always a gathered assembly event. Because we're all together, what? Proclaiming the death of Christ and proclaiming He's coming again. That's what we do. So I get to celebrate His resurrection every Lord's Day. Not just during Easter time, every Lord's Day. Christ is risen. I'm alive, man. You're alive in Christ. I have a hope. I have a destination. I'm going somewhere. And I'm going to do something while I'm here on earth because I have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That's what the church is. The church makes a difference. You'll know them by their love. That's how you'll know them. Why do we do that? Because we love Christ and Christ loved us and it's working out of our life in all kinds of ways. See, I get to greet you every Sunday. I get to greet you. I get to see you. You're my family. Matter of fact, you know when you become a Christian, Christian family comes, becomes closer than even blood family. And hopefully your blood family comes to know Christ and then you're, you're really tight when that happens, hopefully. If you can get, stay away from the family feuds that happen during the holidays. You know, if you, if you can rec- get, get rescued from them, you'll be all right. But we get to greet each other. Remember what it says, greet those with a holy kiss, right? Now, we don't practice that like they did in the day of the Romans. But we do sh- shake hands and we do sometimes hug. We give man hugs and, you know, man hugs is the half hug. Shoulder to sh- shoulder, shoulder hug. But, you know, we have a common faith that we share. And we meet together to worship our God and our Savior. We get to hear the word of God. So see, if if you are not practicing the very things that the Holy Spirit of God has given to sanctify you, well, you are by your actions denying the very things you say that you're believing because if your believing leads in the other direction to what the Scriptures actually point, isn't that a clear denial of Scripture? And shows you don't really believe that Jesus has done what he has done on the cross. You really don't believe that God is faithful to his promise. And you really don't believe that the center of God's program is God's gathered assembly. And you don't really believe that the spirit has been given to you and given gifts to you to minister in the body to provoke one another to love and good works. And you're really not concerned about or expecting for that matter, the Lord's coming that is drawing near every single day, nearer and nearer every single day. 
Because if you look at the passage of Scripture, it says right there in the passage, do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. The coming of Christ. One of the, another motivator for the body of Christ. So, you see, the, the gathered assembly hold fast to their confession of faith. Together they do it, just like it says in Acts. And what is the church? They were continually devoted to themselves. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, doctrine first, to fellowship, gathering together with one another, And then what were they doing? They were breaking bread, the Lord's table, and they were involved with public prayers together when they met together. So that's what a church is. And that's what we ought to do. And that's the admonition that we have. I love that hymn, the church is one foundation where it says, yet she in earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with these whose rest is one, O oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we take them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. The church on earth becomes the church in heaven. That's our hope. Gabe had recently given me a book um, that was titled uh, Why We Love the Church written by two guys, two young guys, Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck. And this is what they said at the end of their book, at one of the chapters at the end of their book about why we love the church. They said this, if I could leave you with one thought, it's this. Go to church. Go to church. Don't go for the coffee, the presentations, music, the amenities. Don't even go for the feelings you may or may not get when you go there. And no offense, he says, these feelings may not be trustworthy most of the time anyway. He says this, go for the gospel. Go for the preaching. Go to be near God's word and with God's people. Go to do that. Because you know that's God's plan for you. That's how God sanctifies us. In fact, the church is about making you ready for heaven. We start here imperfectly, but we end up there perfect, right? And we start here. But we have to make our mark on the world. So I pray this morning for you that you would consider and bring to the top of your list the assembling of yourself together with believers and let nothing prevent you from that happening. So you don't slip into the passage of Scripture where it says, not forsaking our own assembly, it says there. You see that? Our own assembly? That means your assembly, your church, your family, right? As a habit of some. That some have fallen into a very bad habit. And in the end, if somebody finally leaves the church and doesn't come back to the church, or if they go from one church to another, it just shows that they don't understand much or possibly they never, ever were a believer in the first place. Right? Believers stick together. 
They stick together through thick and through thin, through persecution, through affliction. Yeah, through times of having conflict with one another and then working it out. They stick. They don't run. They don't leave. They stick. That's what they do. That's what believers do. And you know what? They grow. And they become very effective for Christ. That's how God designed it. Think about that. This is what the real New Testament church continually does. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the word of God, as always. It does make make things very clear, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn how to confidently approach you. That we would hold fast our faith and corporately we would encourage each other to hold fast our faith. I pray, Lord, then we would provoke each other, incite each other to love and to good works. Use us, Lord, for how you designed us. Use us, Lord, to accomplish your will in this world. Use us as a church body to become strong and healthy so we can do the outreach so we can do the evangelism. And Lord, cause us to come together regularly as a gathered assembly to carry out the things that please you and that make us strong. And I pray, Lord, through all this, you may receive the glory and receive us someday into your presence where we drop off these bodies, get new ones, and enjoy eternity with our great God and Savior. I pray, Lord, this morning you would make us ready for the Lord's table. That in these elements that we are to partake of, Lord, they would again remind us that it was Christ who accomplished so great a salvation. And that because of his shed blood, because of his taking the penalty of sin upon his own body and satisfying the justice of God, that we may come to you by faith and be set free. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to enjoy these things as a gathered assembly. Lord, remove us from our individualistic, secure American mindset and allow us to be more thinking about the other person and seeing what they need, about praying about them, praying for them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would Free us more in this area than ever before this coming year. And I'll thank you, Lord, for all that you'll do in our midst. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.